Bibles this morning, I hope you'll join me in 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now I know last week in chapter 4 I only made it into verse 1 and 2. Uh, if you want to hear the conclusion of that message, let me encourage you to uh, go online and listen to the 9.30 service from today. So I finished uh, that portion of Scripture this morning in the 9.30 service. It, during this hour, I, I want to try to get back on track. I want to start in verse number 6. And this uh, paragraph runs down to verse number 13. Remember, Paul is still talking about this issue of servanthood and what true servanthood really is. And he's going to build upon what he said last week. And last week he just basically said that you and I, we're cooperating together as servants. And we're also, if you will, committed to Jesus in our stewardship. And uh, what a joy it is to see your demonstration of that. Yesterday we committed ourselves and cooperated together as we worked at our back-to-school bash. And what a joy it was to see those 58 families come through yesterday. That translated into about 230 people. And out of that 234 individuals gave their heart and life to Jesus Christ. And so that, that's what it's all about. When you cooperate together, you see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, and they get saved, and they get uh, uh, changed, because He is the the change maker. So now he's going to kind of shift gears, if you will, in verse number 6, and he's going to talk about this issue uh, of trusted humility. That is to say that once you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, and there's a humility that's given to you by God. And through that humility, it's only given to those who trust in Jesus Christ. It really is a, a trusted humility. And as Paul in this particular text is going to warn the, Christ, the Corinthians, remember he's already said that they're carnal. He's already said that they're immature. He's already said that they're babes. He's wanting them to grow up in Jesus Christ. And in order to do so, he's going to do some teaching, if you will, on this particular topic on trusted humility. So with that form of introduction given to us, if you're able to stand, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word, and let's notice this text together with what time we have left. Notice what the Scripture says. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sake. Uh, what he's saying here, if I could say something parenthetically, is the things that he just said, that we're cooperating together that we are committed stewards together. He says, I am transferring that allegory to myself and Apollos. What he means by that is just this. He means that Apollos and himself, as well as Cephas, and the rest of the Corinthian believers all ought to be in the galley with their hand on the oar, rowing together. And being committed together to be good stewards of Jesus Christ. To be faithful in their stewardship. So he says, I'm including me in this, he says. And he says, the reason for this, as we look at verse 6, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. That no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who makes you to differ from another? 
And what has you, or what hath thou, what have you that now, uh, what do you not have that you didn't receive? Now, if you didn't receive it, then why are you glorying in it from the fact that you did not receive it? Now you are full. Now you are rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God ye did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. You are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our hands, being reviled, but we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed and, and we entreat, that is, we comfort others. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscurring of all things even unto this day. You may be seated for prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, here's the text, God, that you have given to us today as we just are just moving through the Word of God together here in 1 Corinthians, this wonderful letter. Uh, I pray, God, that we would uh, take it and receive it and be translated, uh, transferred, committed, uh, as Paul talked about his transference of this uh, analogy. May we, in fact, be transferred to the truth, and may it set us free. We love you. And we're grateful that we have this time together to study your word. Bless it now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So here Paul is going to talk about this trusted humility that can only come from God. Notice how he teaches the Corinthians. He begins, first of all, by pointing out personal pride. Pointing out personal pride. In verses 6 through 8, he points out pride in the life of of the Corinthians. Because of the Corinthians' carnal, immature nature, Paul does two things to try to wake them up and get them going to grow up for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, remember what pride is. Pride, I've heard it been said that pride is, I'm for me. I'm for me. I, I, whatever I do, I just do it all for me. It's all about me, 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 me. And that's what Corinthians, the church at Corinth, was all about. It was all about me. In fact, that whole city was all about me. But when these individuals received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, it should have ceased to be about themselves and should have been all about Jesus. So when it comes to your life and my life, when it comes to our life together corporately as a church, it ought not to be all about me. It ought not to be all about you. It ought to be all about Jesus. Why did we do what we did yesterday? Because we love lost people. And we love Jesus. And we did not do that, that we might get a little star on our lapel saying, look what we did. No, we did that yesterday so that we could just see one more soul saved. Just one more. And God blessed us by giving us four. And so we find here that this trusted humility that God has entrusted us with carries the idea, if you will, of squashing pride. Pushing down pride. And this is what Paul's pointing out. He's pointing out personal pride. Notice two things how he does this. Number one, the first thing is he issues a strong reprimand in verse 6 and 7. <clears throat> a strong, excuse me, reprimand in verse 6 and 7. He sets 
this, uh, uh, this reprimand, if you will, up by pointing to the analogy that he just told in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. We saw that in last week's outline. He's making sure that the Corinthians know that what he is asking them to do is something that him and Apollos and Cephas, all the leaders of the church, are already doing. They have already squashed pride in their life, opened their hands in surrender and said, God, wherever you lead, I'll go. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And he's saying, what he's t- telling the uh, church at Corinth is, you haven't got there yet. You are babies, you're immature, you're carnal, and you're prideful. And the pr- if you don't deal with your pride, he's saying, it will destroy the church. It'll tear the church apart. And so notice what he says there in verse number 6. He says in the text, And these things, brethren, I have uh, figuratively translated to myself and Apollos for your sake, that you might learn in us. Now here's where you need to mark in your Bibles. I would underline this, this phrase. Not to think of men above that which is written. There, in essence, is Paul pointing his finger in reprimand and saying, You guys are full of pride. You're pride-filled. What Paul is saying here is, is that pride is what's, what caused them to choose one minister above another. You say you like Paul, you say you like Apollos, you say you like Cephas. Some say you follow after Christ. I thank God Paul said, I didn't baptize any of you, because you're nothing but a bunch of prideful hypocrites. And you need to deal with your pride if you want your church to continue to grow. It's the same pride that caused them to be divided within the church and not cooperate together as servants and commit themselves together in their stewardship. Paul didn't want anybody in the church to suffer from this damaging sin of pride. So notice what he says in verse number 6 again. In the latter part of the verse he says, "...that no one of you be puffed up for one against another." He says, "...I don't want there to be such pride..." Raise itself up inside of you that brother goes against brother, sister goes against sister. That these sects, these groups, these splinters that pop up in the church because of pride attack one another. And the church is destroyed from the inside out. I'm going to tell you what, that's what's happening in America today. I believe it was Miguel Gorbachev that uh, was asked in an interview many, many years ago, said uh, this issue of attacking America. And Miguel Gorbachev said on public television, he says, you won't have to worry about me attacking America. You see, I know one simple truth about America. You do not have to attack America from the outside in order to destroy it. He said, you just leave her alone. She'll destroy yourself from the inside out. Dear friend, we are seeing this come to fruition today. When we kick God out of schools, when we take the Ten Commandments out of schools, when we stop praying in football games, and we start recognizing God as the centermost part of our country, we become so filled with pride because we think we know the way, we think we are the way, we think that we are the life, and we begin to march down this road with such pride inside of us and such conceit inside of us that we destroy ourselves and the church is destroyed along with it. Uh, you mark this down. Whichever way the family goes, that's the way the church will go. And whichever way the church will go, that's the way the nation will go. 
So if you want the family to be strong, then we've got to have some strong dads, some strong moms, dads that will lead the way in a proper way, dads that will lead their family to the throne of grace. We've got to have some moms that will love and pray for their kids and ask God to intervene in their children's lives. We've got to have a church that's strong, that's not afraid to shout praises to God and say, yeah, He is the way maker. He's the only way, the only truth, and the only life. We need some young men to stand up here and be able to sing like Andrew did and us say, that's it, that's the way to do it. That's what we need. More young men like that. So pride doesn't step in. Get the best of us. So he says, I don't want any of you being puffed up and coming against each other. So the first part of this reprimand deals with pride. But then he takes it a step further in verse number 7. He takes it a step further. Notice what he says in verse number 7. He goes on and says this. He says, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hath thou that thou didst not receive? And if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? So he says here, there are three parts to this uh, particular verse, and every one of these questions deals with the topic of boasting. You see, you can't have pride and not boast. If you've got pride, you're going to boast. And that's what the problem with the church was. They were boasting, look at us. Look at what we're able to do. Man, we've got so much money, we don't, I'm telling you what, we're okay. We, we are in no financial danger whatsoever. We are wonderful. We are so great. We just are, this is a wonder, we're a wonderful church. Man, nobody's got any problems around here. I mean, it's just me and you and us and kumbaya, and it's just great. And so they were boasting to this fact. That they didn't need anything. I'm telling you what, the very day that we find out or we come to the conclusion in our own selves and we become so pride-filled that we don't need Jesus, you write Ichabod across the door, we're dead. So what is he saying here? Notice these three parts in this boasting. Question number one. He says there in the text, For who maketh thee to differ from another? You know what he's saying there? He's simply saying here uh, in this text, Why do you think you were above other believers in the church. You ever met somebody like that? Why do you think you're above other believers in the church? You're saved, born again, just like everybody else. Paul says, how dare you walk around with your chest poked out to such a capacity thinking that you're somebody when, when you're nothing. I've said it before. I'll say it again right here because this is a good place for it. You really think your hot's not in a pot, but you're really just a cold booger on a paper plate. Number two, look at what he says next. He goes on to say here in the text, he says, And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? You know what he's saying there in that text? He says, What does anybody have that in one way or another wasn't given to them? He's simply saying, God has given you everything you have. We wouldn't have this church had God not given it to us. That's what he's talking about in, in the church at Corinth. Uh, we wouldn't have this church. You wouldn't have a policy if God hadn't given him to us. You, you wouldn't have had me if God hadn't have sent me your way. I'm telling you what, God is the author and finisher of our faith. He sent me to you, Paul says. I established the church like God wanted me established. You got saved. You received Christ as your Savior. You never got grown up in your faith, and you're bickering with one another, thinking that you're better with one another. He says, listen, you've got to come back to the truth. Everything that you have has been given to you by God. And then the third, the third question. Look at it. It's quite fascinating. He goes on to say, Now, uh, if you didn't receive it, uh, why do you glory as if thou had not received it? The word glory there means to create. To be someone that has created something is proud of it. 
What he's saying here in the text is, why are you boasting as if you created it in this text, in this particular setting, the church, their pastors? He said, you, you, you feel like you've created the church, you feel like you created your pastor, and now you're judging them. You're judging your pastor, you're judging the church, you're judging those that are in, in essence, here's what he's saying, who do you think you are? Uh, many years ago, when I was a teenager, my mother bought me a silk jacket. Well, it was beautiful. It had little patches, different colors, different colors silk on it. And uh, I looked like I was supposed to be on the set of Miami Vice. I mean, I thought I was Don Johnson. I mean, I did. Da -da 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 -da. I mean, that's a big deal, man, uh, when I was a kid. And so Mom got me this thing. And, man, I just, man, I just, it looked good. Man, it looked good. And I had that thing on. I was going to school one day. And my brother, who is four years younger than I am, uh, he was eating a, uh, a wampum biscuit. Y'all know what wampum biscuits are? Those that don't know what wampum biscuits are, those are those biscuits in a can. You wampum them on the counter and they open up. Well, she made some of those. And my brother had had more than he was supposed to have. And I didn't have all that I thought I should have. Well, we, we kind of got in a little bit of a fight. And he took his, he, he had a biscuit in his hand. He stuffed that biscuit in his mouth. And he took those greasy fingers and he put them right on my silk my brand new silk jacket. And when he did that, Judy, something tripped in my brain. I was so mad. I jumped over. My dad had a little stool there that he put his feet on when he's resting in his chair. I jumped over that stool. I jumped on his head. I started beating him. Start, I mean, just wailing upon him. And the next thing I knew, I'm telling you what, a rapture happened. <laughs> I ain't lying. My mama came out of there. And she reached out and she grabbed me by the ear. You ever been pulled by your ear? I'm telling you what, that'll get your attention now. She jerked me up by my ear and I couldn't help but go then. And I just started making my way there. And she pulled us all and put my brother in one corner, put me in another corner. Came back to me and she took her little finger and pointed it in my face. And she said, who do you think you are? She said, I'm the one that gave birth to you. I'm the one that gave birth to your brother. Y'all, my kids, I don't know who you think you are, but you're not the boss in this house. Y'all ought to be ashamed of yourself. And she kept saying, over, it's ringing in my ears right now. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? That's the same principle and atmosphere that Paul is in when he's talking to the church at Corinth. He's saying, who do you think you are? God has saved you. God's given you this church. He's given you this city. You are to be a light to these people that need Jesus. You have this great opportunity to see all these people come to Jesus Christ. And you're so full of yourself that you won't even go outside and tell anybody about Jesus. Several years ago, I was in, um, I was at, many, many years ago, I was in Canada. I was preaching this revival in Canada. And, and I was there and... Man, I went to the church, and they didn't have but 10 people. And I thought, my stars, man, they don't have many people at all. They don't have any outreach, no evangelism, nothing, absolutely nothing. The only reason why we were having the revival is uh, I got hooked up um, through Coca-Cola, flew me up, uh, well, it's a long story, but anyways, I got hooked up with the pastor on a duck hunting trip that I wasn't duck hunting. I was out scoping out an opportunity to, to share the gospel, and um, Henry Blackaby that wrote... Uh, experiencing God, put me in contact with this pastor at Discovery Baptist Church. We began to talk. We'll make a long story short. We set up a revival. That's the only reason why we had revival there is that God intervened in it. And I thought, man, I tell you what, they don't have anything going on. My, my cohort that was with me, one of my team members, was so distraught over there weeping. I said, what's wrong? He said, they ain't winning nobody to Jesus. 
And I said, well, come with me. Let's go outside. So we walked outside just a minute. We walked outside. Here coming up the street was a skateboarder, two boys skateboarding up the street. Well, I just stood in front of them, just like this right here as they come walking. And uh, here's this American. Here's these two Canadian boys coming. They stopped. You know, Canadians are the sweetest people in the world. I don't think you can make them mad. And so they stopped right there before us, and they said, uh, they said well, can we get by? I said, i, I got to tell you something first. And they said, what? I said, Jesus loves you. And right there, I shared the gospel with them. And right there, watch this. Right there, on that sidewalk, me just walking out the door, standing in front of those little boys that were skateboarding, stopping them, sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those two boys bowed their head, prayed, and asked Jesus Christ to come into their heart. Man, I'm here to tell you, people are hungry for the truth. But we can't be so full of ourselves and say, Well, I'm going to tell you what. If they're going to get saved, they've got to come into church. They're going to get saved. They need to come in and listen to the preacher preach. No, listen. If they want to be saved, somebody's got to tell them. And that's what Paul was saying. He was giving this strong reprimand, saying it's your responsibility to get out there and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But watch this. Then he, does a, he gives them, he issues a stinging reflection in verse 8. Watch this. A stinging refle- reflection. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, now you're full. Full of yourself. Now you're rich. Rich into your own. You have reigned as kings without us. If I'm marking my Bible, I'd underline that. You have reigned as kings without them. You know what Paul's saying there? Paul's saying, you are so full of yourself, you are acting like the millennium has already occurred and you have become your own kings and you're reigning just like Jesus had already come back and it's the millennial reign. And the fact of the matter is the rapture hadn't even happened yet. That's what he's saying here. Notice what he goes on to say. He also says this. He says, I would to God Ye did reign, that we also might reign with you. He said, man, I wish it was. I I wish you were right. I wish you were reigning. But you're not. And the reason why you're not is because you're so full of yourself and you're not listening to what God's saying. God wants you to win people to Jesus. He wants to see one more soul come into his kingdom. Paul, Paul points out their personal pride. Number two, very quickly, watch this. Oh, this is good. The second thing he does when he's teaching them Not only is he pointing out personal pride, he points to trusted humility. He points to, or is going to point to, trusted humility in verses 9 through 13. So with still a hint of sarcasm, Paul points out that this trusted humility comes from God and it will be hated by the world. If you are humble before God, trusted humility that's been given by God is contrary to the ways of the world. In so much so that Paul mentions four words that describe how the world is going to view you uh, if you have trusted humility as a servant of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. Number one, he says, the first thing I want you to know is we're spectacles. We're spectacles. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, for I think that God hath sent us the apostles last as it were appointed to death. Now, let me stop right there and say this parenthetically. What Paul is doing is he's creating imagery in the minds of the Corinthians. Remember, in Corinth, it was the Las Vegas of the day. It was a sin city, an S-I-N, a sin city. It was like taking Las Vegas and New York City and, and uh, uh, Bell Street and just cramming them all together. I mean, it was absolutely horrific. They had these big arenas there. There would be these huge opportunities to have these gladiators come, and these gladiators would fight. But always the main event, the main event in these gladiators would be a fight unto the death. It would always be last. 
It was a fight into death, and it would always be last. Much like the imagery that's given in the new in that Marvel's movie Thor Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok, in that movie, you've got Thor, and he's going to fight the Hulk. It's the big deal. And what happened, man, I'm telling you what, everybody's going to say, the Hulk is going to come in here. He's going to absolutely destroy Thor because he's destroyed everybody that's tried to beat him. Same thing here in this text. But he's referring to the fact that they're the ones that are about to be destroyed. He says, I feel like we're coming into the ring. We're coming into the arena last. And we are appointed to death. We are going to die for our uh, faith. And he says this, for we are made spectacles, there it is, spectacles to the world and to angels and to men. He says, it's not just the world that's watching, the angels are watching. Do you know the angels are straining over the banisters of heaven today, wondering about this issue of salvation? They know nothing about the free gift of salvation and redemption. Only the humanity that has been sinful, yet God in His great love, who sent Christ to die for our sins on Calvary's cross, buried and rose again. We know all about redemption because of Christ and they strain the book of Hebrews says they strain over heaven looking into these things because they desire to see them that's why they rejoice when one gets saved look another one's gotten saved they say we're spectacles he says we're spectacles to the world we're spectacles to angels and we're spectacles to men lost men here lost men and women are looking at us seeing how are we going to respond I'm telling you what I'm so excited about what God is doing and how you're responding to the Word of God in Sunday school in your giving I'm telling you God has showed up in a real way had two precious families join this last hour man there are people waiting to be baptized God is moving I'm telling you whether you realize this or not this church is a spectacle for Jesus Christ. Number two. He also says we're simpletons. Verse 10. Simpletons. He says we're fools for Christ's sake. But notice the sarcasm here. He said, but you're wise in Christ. He says we're weak, but you're strong. We're honorable, but you're despised. Again, he's pointing out their pride. and He's trying to get them to understand that true humility has brokenness of these things. And to be a fool for Christ goes completely against, if you will, the, uh, the Athenian philosophers of the day and the Greek philosophy of the day that says, oh, you know what, you ought not to work or anything like that. You just coast on and just be the best you you can be. This is your best life now. You just enjoy yourself on the way up. Believe whatever you want to believe. And you believe that with all your heart, we'll all end up in heaven or Nirvana or wherever, the, uh, wherever else, uh, other name of uh, heaven that you might think. And it's a lie from the very pits of hell. It's been existing since the first century church. He says we are simpletons for Jesus Christ. We are fools for Christ's sake. And then look what he says in verse 3. Or excuse me, verse 11 and 12. He says we're sufferers. I'm out of time. Hurry, let's go quick. 11 and 12. He says we're sufferers. He says, even in this present hour, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're naked, we're buffeted, that is, we're beaten, we, have, uh, we don't even have a place to lay our heads. There's no certain dwelling places. He says, and men, we labor, we're working hard. In fact, we're working so hard, we're working with our hands, being reviled, but we still bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. You know what he's saying there in the text? He says two things. He says, we're working, we're working, that word working there means to work to the point of exhaustion. He's that, and by the way, that, that's one of the reasons why we're not having service tonight. 
We, we take this weekend, we dumped everything that we possibly could into it from the point that we would work ourselves into a point of exhaustion so that those four souls might come to know Christ as Savior. And, and so he says there in the text, he says that, man, we're, we work to a, to a point of exhaustion. He expounds more upon this in 2 Corinthians. When he writes the second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, he talks more about this issue of working. But what he's doing in this text is he's saying, you Greek Christians that are in the church at Corinth, you have got to get up off your duff, and you've got to get busy for Jesus' sake. You've got to quit living like everything else is beneath you. You've got to get in the galley, he's saying, and you've got to put your hand on the oar, and you've got to help me row. We've got to someplace to go. We We've got more people to win to Jesus. We've got one more person to get in Sunday school. We've got someone, one more person to pray for. We've got some, one more person we need to reach. One more family we need to talk to. Let's row together. And if we have to suffer, we'll get calluses on our hand. We'll be talked about. But thank God, we'll reach one more for Jesus Christ. And he says there, he says, we've been reviled. That means uh, to be abused with words. I promise you. If you take a stand for Jesus, somebody is going to abuse you with their words. They will. They will abuse you with their words. They won't like it. They'll call you a Bible thumper. They'll call you a holy roller. They'll call you a Jesus freak. They will call you every name in the book. You know, I get two responses when I go to Kroger or, um, or a Walmart or uh, all my favorite shopping places. The first response I get is, when, I'm, when I turn and I go down an aisle, is, Oh, there's a preacher. Hey, pastor. Hey, pastor. How you doing? That's one response. The second response I get, it tickles me because I don't think I see it. But I do. The second response I get is I turn down the aisle and they look and go, There's a preacher. <laughs> look, I'm just going to be honest. When you do that, I'm wondering what's in your buggy. <laughs> I'm just telling you. That's the truth. And so, listen, I promise you, you take a stand for Jesus, there are going to be folks who are going to talk about you. Well, you've got to be okay with that. Uh, I hope you'll listen to the 9.30 sermon. Uh, the 9.30 message was on 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. And Paul deals in that passage of Scripture about how to handle, how to handle when people judge you wrongly. When they judge you wrongly, how do you respond to that? He tells us there in the text. I promise you, if you're for Jesus, people will judge you wrongly. Number, five, number four, and the last one, he says this. He just simply says, we're scum. We're scum. Look at what he says there in the text, verse, uh, in verse 13. He says, being defamed, we, in, we entreat. Uh, that is... Uh, being talked about to the point where we have, we have uh, people just despise us. He says, we still comfort people. We still comfort them. He says, we are made as filth of the world and are the offscurring of all things to this day. Those two words, filth and offscurring, those are uh, synonyms in the Greek. Those two words mean, uh, it's the illustration of what's in the pot after everybody has had something to eat. It's like this. You take your crock pot, and at the end of the day, after everybody's had something to eat, and you put the lid on the crock pot, and you forget it for a few days, and you go back and you look in the crock pot, and it's nasty. Has that ever happened, or is that just my house? Huh? Okay, so what do you have to do? You've got to get it, and you got to soak it, and you soak it, and then you wash it out, and then that residual mess that's left, that's what he's talking about here, scum. He says, that's what we've become to this world. We're nothing but throwaway. We are throw stuff that you throw away. 
He says, we're like the stuff that's at the bottom of a pot. And he says this, because of this, God is using us greatly. So I want to ask you a question in regard to this passage of Scripture. He says here in the text that being a spectacle, being a simpleton, being a sufferer, and being scum. He says these are the qualifications when you have trusted humility of God. I wonder, do we possess any of these qualities? If we don't, could it be because we're too full of ourselves that we've let conceit get in the way, let pride get in the way? Once upon a time, there was a rider that came across a few soldiers who were trying to move a heavy log, and they couldn't, they didn't have any success. I mean, they were really struggling. The corporal was standing by just watching the men struggle. The rider could not believe it. He finally asked the corporal, he says, uh, What are you doing? Why aren't you helping? And the corporal replied, I'm a corporal. I give orders. The rider said nothing, but in response, instead dismounted the horse. He went up and he stood by the soldiers, and as they tried to lift the wood, he got up under them and he picked the wood up and he helped them and became much lighter. And they moved, and with his help, the task was finally carried out and completed. Do you know who that rider was that did that? The rider was none other than a man by the name of George Washington, the commander-in-chief. He quietly got back on his horse and he went over to the corporal and he said, Sir, the next time your men need help, you send for the commander-in-chief. And with that, he rode away. Dear friend, nothing, absolutely nothing, should be beneath us. We should absolutely get in the galleys and we ought to work hard because God has given us a humility that He's trusted to us. So if we think that we're wise, if we think that we're strong, if we think that we're honorable, maybe we're filled with pride and not as truly humble as we really think we are. Let's bow for prayer. Maybe you're here today and maybe you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. Then I want to ask you, why not do you do that today? Why not today, let today be the day that you lay pride aside and you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. So how might I do that, Pastor? How, how can I do that? Well, the Bible just is clear. The Bible says, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So dear friend, if you're here and you'd like to be saved today, I'm going to ask you to do that. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. You might say, how, how can I do that? How might I do that? Can you help me? I can. Why don't you say something like this from your heart to God's heart? Why don't you say, Lord Jesus, I know you are the Messiah. And I know that I am a sinner. And this morning I ask you, to forgive me of my sin. I repent of my sin and trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you.